We do stories every year uh, for three weeks in the spring, and we do it because we want to remind you of this. We believe God worked in the lives of people in the New Testament, but here's what the Spirit of God told us in the New Testament. He still works through people's lives. And um, we don't put these these storytellers up here because they've arrived or they're on a pedestal or something. We put them up here because they're just like us in the seats. They're just like us. They have the same kinds of struggles and pains and histories. And so uh, don't listen for the whole three weeks. Don't listen like we put some kind of preacher up here. Listen like this is someone from the seats, and we're really um, uh, glad that they're here. And uh, it takes courage to be up here. This is Angie Widner. Now, we got it wrong in the bulletin. It's Widner, W-I-D-N-E-R. Angie's been an instructor at UNI for the last nine years. She graduated from Wartburg College, and while she was there, she discovered, literally, Orchard Hill Church. She received her master's degree from UNI and spent many years traveling across the globe with um, Camp Adventure and YMCA. Angie's married to Eric... And they're parenting five amazing daughters, and they're regularly in church with us on any given Sunday. Angie's currently completing her dissertation for her doctorate at UNI, and has an, which you're going to hear, has an amazing story of faith, patience, learning that life with Jesus is more about relationship than rules, and that God answers prayers in amazing and surprising ways, ways that are abundantly more than all we could ask or imagine. Angie, I'm eager for you to share your story. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. A lot of the best stories end with a hero. Well, mine starts off with mine. Without starts out with one. My mother. Of course, everyone can say that about the person who gave birth to them, but I weighed 11 pounds and my mom had me naturally. So you see my point. I was born on November 1st, 1976, to my parents, David and Kathleen Gorsuch. I grew up in Montezuma, Iowa. As the baby of my family, I am seven years younger than my sister, Christy, and five years younger than my brother, Robert. Over the past year, I have repeatedly heard that leaders at Orchard talk about the two rails of life, how heartache and despair can run right alongside joy and happiness. I've been examining the role of those rails in my own life. As a child, on one rail, my days were filled with fun and adventure, playing outside with my brother and cousins, trying to hang out with my older sister, and having sleepovers with friends. I was in piano, dance, gymnastics, 4-H, and Girl Scouts. We enjoyed large extended family gatherings at both sets of my grandparents' houses. Both sets of my grandparents were farmers. My parents farmed with my paternal grandparents. We lived on the same farm, and our houses were easily connected by dirt roads through the fields. Life on the farm was idyllic. I spent my days fishing, swimming or ice skating at the pond, playing and building forts in the haymow, riding horses, and playing in the sandbox. And who gets to share the same hairdo with their dad very often? (laughs) Much of my childhood revolved around activities at the church. I was active in Sunday school, youth group, and spent a week each summer at Knoxville's church camp. Our church pastor, George Salnave, invested in us kids. Each year, a small group of us memorized the Christmas story and recited it at Christmas Eve service. As a reward for our accomplishment, George and his wife took us out to the best pizza place in our area. 
George was even the one to teach me and my friend Amy the birds and the bees. A conversation he probably did not expect to crop up at family night at the church. But he answered our questions honestly and appropriately. On the other rail of my childhood, my family faced challenges surrounding my mom's battle with depression. It was a time when people didn't talk about it, and neither did we. So we suffered silently within the confines of our family. The single most significant event of my family's life happened in 1988 when I was 11 years old. That year, we received a notice of eviction from my grandparents. We were to move off the farm. I didn't know the relationship between my parents and grandparents was fragile, but I was fully aware of the moment that it shattered for good. My parents were devastated. Our lives were filled with turmoil and uncertainty. What was next? How do we begin to deconstruct the life we had created on the farm? A large farm sale occurred to clear out the equipment. We sold our horses, and my, my parents began searching for jobs in a house in town. To say this transition was hard is a gross understatement. Even the cats wanted things to stay the same. In the months before we moved, we tried to relocate them to a neighbor's farm, but no matter how many ways we tried to drive there, they always found their way back to our house. What my grandparents hadn't anticipated was in the process of severing the work ties with my parents, they would lose all of us. I could tell this was a surprise to them the moment my grandmother placed her shoulder hand on my shoulder at church, not too long after the eviction notice had come. I shrugged her off, and I remember the tears that instantly sprang to her eyes. But this was a situation that called for sides, and I fell definitively on the side of my parents. The loss of my grandparents was sharp. I had always been very close to them. In the newfound absence of them from my life, my maternal grandmother, Grandma Farley, who I'd also always been close to, became an even more important person in my life. Our relationship grew deeper as the years went on. She was a tell-it-like-it-is kind of woman, with a big personality, but also a heart as big, to, as big to match. When I wouldn't obey my mom and make my bed before school, my Grandma Farley told me, I'm coming to your house after you leave for school every morning, and I'm checking your bed. And if you haven't made it, I'm driving up to the school, and I'll pull you out of class in front of all your friends. And I knew she'd do it, too. So you better believe I started making my bed. She had a knack for letting you know you had messed up and that she loved you at the same time. With children of my own now, I know how tricky that balance can be. During my junior high and high school years, I had everything going for me. Being from a small school, I was able to be involved in just about everything. I played four sports, and my teams enjoyed great success, making it to state tournaments and meets. There were band trips, show choir competitions, and mock trials. Our church had a youth pastor by then, Tim Elrod, and our youth group was one of the most happening things for kids in my small town. My friends and I went to Young Life camps and chased around Christian music festivals during the summers. We did prayer circles at school over the lunch hour. On my left ring finger, I wore a gold band given to me by my mom as a symbol of my marriage to God until I found my husband someday. In other words, be a good girl and don't have sex. They said I could say that. (laughs) During my junior high and high school years, my mom's depression seemed to worsen, or maybe it came into sharper view through my teenage eyes. Our relationship suffered during those years. While she experienced stress and sadness, I often turned away 
intolerant of what I perceived as her weakness. College came, and I enjoyed the freedom that brought. I went to Warburg College, played softball, and found my place as a social work major. During a phone call to home, I mentioned, bravely, because I knew it wouldn't go over well, that I was going out to a bar with some friends. A strong disagreement ensued, and I specifically specifically remember my mom saying, I guess I just thought you were a Christian. To which I replied, Mom, Jesus drank wine with the disciples. But to be honest, I didn't know if it was okay. I remember learning that Pastor Trochty, the campus pastor at Wartburg, took his class at the end of the semester to Joe's Nighthawk for beers. I was stunned. A pastor who drinks? It was hard to sort out the messages of my youth with the new experiences of my young adulthood. My relationship with my college boyfriend brought great joy and also deep pain. Again, those two rails. On one hand, he was the all-American boy, smart, kind, responsible, great athlete, and from an incredibly upstanding Christian family. I grew close to his entire family and valued the lessons I learned from his parents about marriage, taking care of your community, and your family. On the other rail, we went back and forth, trying not to get so serious too young and falling for each other at the same time. At the point at which I was fully invested, I struggled with repeated heartache from our on and off again ways. During one of our off times, I was feeling incredible sadness and knew I needed God. I got in my car one Sunday morning and drove to Cedar Falls to find a place to go to church. I can't tell you why I took the turns that I did, but somehow I ended up driving by a sign for a church with a service starting in just minutes. That was the day I was introduced to Orchard Hill Church. I was moved by Pastor Ed Baker, and that first visit was the start of making Orchard my home church in the Cedar Valley. Following my college graduation, I spent the summer with Camp Adventure Child and Youth Services, working with children in Germany. That led to graduate school at UNI and a slight, slight career shift to youth services and nonprofit management. I have continued in various ways to be involved with Camp Adventure for nearly 18 years now. I have been fortunate to spend periods of time living in Germany, South Korea, Japan, and Hawaii, and from there traveled to over 20 countries throughout Europe, Asia, and Africa. After graduate school, I moved to California, where I worked as a youth and family program director for the YMCA. Mostly I had to get out of Iowa, because everyone around me was getting married. I love my job and life in Northern California. My relationship with my mom benefited from the geographic distance between us. California may have been extra good to me because I had prayers coming my way. While I was living there, two close family members told me they were praying for me to find my way because I guess I had lost it after choosing to live in the San Francisco Bay Area. You know, where all the gay people live. I eventually landed what I considered my dream job when I became the director of the Global Teens Program at the International YMCA in New York City. As much as I loved California, I also really loved New York City. I remember looking up and down the subway cars thinking to myself, this is the world's people all gathered together. I worked with amazing teens setting up international experiences for them across the globe. The offices of the International Y were right along Central Park West, so my commute included a stroll, two strolls, through Central Park every day. And both California and New York were good for the fact that many young professionals in their 20s and early 30s were single. While in that position, I traveled to Costa Rica, India, and Kenya, three places where I saw the most extreme poverty I had ever encountered. Of course, that depends on how we define poverty. 
in money and material things, there was wretched poverty. But in love and values and family, there was immense richness. For all of my international experiences, I will be eternally grateful. My worldview was blown up during those, during those years of travel. I experienced cultures very different from my own, and with that, observed deep, deeply religious people of other faiths. In Egypt, I saw entire cities of people respond to the Islamic call to prayer multiple times a day. In Japan, which is primarily Buddhist, I experienced the safest and most peaceful society I have ever known. In so many of the countries I visited, I was struck by the deep devotion to God I saw in those around me, and further by how the entire society seemed to be guided by faith in a way we don't see as much in the United States. I wrestled with my questions regarding the world's religions and considered that maybe those religions were ways to God as well. But the most trusted Christians in my life told me, you can't call yourself a Christian if you believe that. That underscored the central challenge of my faith during that time. I still believed in God, but I didn't know how to fit into the Christian life I had been taught was the right way, a way based on rules and exclusions. And so during most of my 20s and early 30s, I had what I would call a distant faith. I attended church occasionally. I still believed in God, of course, and I prayed, but I was not committed to deepening my faith as I once had. For various reasons, I made the difficult decision to move back to Iowa from New York City. I wasn't ready to leave New York, but my dad had been undergoing cancer treatments for several years, and my grandmother was aging. I had been too far from my sister and her family for too long and wanted to be closer again so I could watch my nephews grow up. When Grandma Farley passed away unexpectedly, but so peacefully, in 2007, I was thankful to be close and to have had more time with her during the year and a half before she died. In January 2008, my dad's cancer significantly progressed. Up to that point, it had always been, well, they found some here, so he's going to do chemo or radiation. But for the most part, he seemed fine. In the three months before my dad passed in March 2008, he deteriorated quickly. The cancer metastasized in his spine, and he was no longer able to walk. My siblings and I began taking turns taking care of him, helping my mom take care of him at home. He wasn't sleeping well, so at times I sat up with him in the middle of the night and we talked. He had never been so open before, and in that openness I learned of the regrets he had for his own life. I was left to wonder what his life may have been had things gone differently for him. There is one part of his death that brings me comfort. He was in a hospital bed in our living room during the final days, and we kept various Celine Dion CDs playing by his side. My dad loves Celine Dion. My sister and I were in the room when my dad took his last breath on this earth. We still don't know how it happened, but as we gathered by his bed after he died, one song played over and over again. My sister thought I had pushed repeat, and she uh, she thought I'd pushed it, and I thought she had pushed it. That song must have played seven or eight times in a row before it was finally shut off. The song is called A World to Believe In. The lyrics and chorus are incredible, and I can't share them all, but here's just a sample from the first verse. I've seen the tears and the heartache, and I felt the pain. I've seen the hatred in so many lives, lost in vain. And yet through the darkness, there's always a light that shines through and takes me back home. 
All of the promises broken, all of the songs left unsung, seem so far away as I make my way back to you. I think it will always be one of the saddest and most beautiful and most hopeful songs I will ever hear. To me and my sister, it sounded like my dad's last prayer to God and his final gift to us. Now, too soon after my dad passed, I broke things off with a man I expected to marry. We had met in New York and moved back to Iowa at the same time. After three years together and several months of me thinking, I'm just going to marry him. I can't start over at 30. I finally found the courage to end that relationship. There were too many questions about faithfulness and other essential values I needed in my lifelong partner. And so there I was, 30 years old, living in Iowa, single. I focused on my doctorate degree, which I had started by then. My life was work, research, and writing. Although I have to give a shout-out to my two dogs, Carter and Sadie, for being the apples of my eye at a time when my biological clock was in full freak-out mode. (laughs) Those two dogs saved my houseplants. I was killing them off because I was trying to water them too often. I needed something to nurture that badly. After my doctoral coursework was complete, I decided to get a life again. I dated a man who withheld a great deal from me, including his two children, for the nearly year we dated. I awakened on my 35th birthday, and I do mean I awakened, with the certainty our relationship had reached its end. I wanted more, and I had no more time to waste. I spent the days that followed in the loving care of one of my most dear friends who said, you just need to go on some dates. So she helped me set up a profile on Match.com. First up, the Mormon. Now, he wasn't actually a Mormon, but he had clicked the wrong thing on his profile, indicating he was LDS. He was Lutheran at the time, so I guess he got it a little mixed up. But he had a beer in front of him in one of the pictures, so I thought, he can't be that Mormon. On November 9th, 2011, I met Eric Widner, The chemistry and connection between us was immediately apparent. I came to know him as a man of high character and work ethic who had a deep devotion to his three daughters and was a superb cook in the kitchen. After knowing him for just over a week, I called my mom to tell her I had met the man I was going to marry. (laughs) Now, some parents may advise you to take your time, but I guess when your daughter is 35 and never been married... It's easy to get on board right away, and that's what she did. (laughs) Eric and I were engaged by Christmas and married by Memorial Day. Eric's three daughters, Emma, 15 when I met her, Megan, 13, and Maddie, 11, immediately embraced me. During our engagement photos, we took a fun picture holding signs that said, Buy one, get three free. What a sweet deal. (laughs) That's a great way of putting it. The emotions of falling in love are powerful, and I had that times four. At 35, I expected to find someone who had already been married at that point. I knew the pain of a divorce would be part of the story. But what I didn't expect was the divorce to be hard on me as well. I went through a time I can only describe as a grieving process when I felt real sadness over the divorce and the girl's mom. I wished it to be different for the girl's sake. Of course, if all, has, all had gone as it should, I wouldn't be in their lives. So it was confusing. 
I questioned whether I was the backup plan in my husband's life. I was released from that pestering feeling after hearing one of the messages at Orchard by Julie Cameron, who said this, Our God is a God of continual plan A's. We welcomed our first daughter, or fourth, depending on how you look at it, Vivian Christine, on April 2nd, 2013. After Vivian, we experienced two miscarriages and wondered if we'd be able to have another child. I didn't know exactly how to think about those unknown babies, whether they had even made it to the point of having a spirit. I have since gained a clear understanding that our miscarriages weren't just an end, but the beginning of two spirits that have carried on and are with God. On February 8th, 2015, we were blessed with the birth of Clara Beverly. Remember Grandma Farley? Her first name was Beverly. Vivian and Clara are great friends already, and I'm praying they end up with a special sisterhood my stepdaughters share with each other. I have come to understand my mom's depression differently. Years of adulthood and teaching college students have opened my eyes to the prevalence of mental illness. I also had one experience with my mom that shifted my view. See, even as an adult, I carried some of the baggage of my early years and wasn't able to separate my mom from her depression. It was on a family trip two years ago when I saw firsthand the impact of her depression. Taking medication had brought her peace in her heart and mind for several years, but just weeks before our vacation, she decided to stop taking it, hoping she could continue with that same peace on her own. On that trip, she maintained a thin layer of composure until it finally broke. We had a lengthy conversation one evening, and it hit me. This is the depression talking, not my mom. I had never been so clear about the difference before. That realization released a flood of compassion for my mom I had never experienced before. I don't have a big aha moment or a date I can give you when I can say I was saved or when I committed my life to Jesus. Rather, my faith has included many commitments and renewals along the way. All this brings me to August 30th, 2015, the day of the gathering for Orchard Hill Church. During that service, I felt God's deep call to me to do better in my faith, to do better for the sake of my family. Dave Bartlett's words echo in my mind constantly. Build your house on the rock of Jesus. It really does matter. I knew it was time to more carefully and deeply tend to my faith so I can be a spiritual leader within my family. That led me to the journey class where I've had the opportunity to reinvest time and focus into my relationship with God over the past year in a way I haven't for a long time. I've been able to take time to reflect on how the two rails of my life have always been there, synchronous in many ways, both vital in getting me to where I am today. The early challenges in my life most certainly led me to choosing a career of purpose. After an early career in youth services and nonprofit work, Today, I get to teach college students who want to be leaders in organizations that help address the many needs in our communities. I see see extraordinary Christian faith at the root of many of my students' career aspirations, and I am deeply moved by them. The devastation surrounding our move from the farm and the subsequent years of separation from my grandparents gave me my first, most challenging opportunity to practice forgiveness. While my grandmother passed away just a couple years after the family split, I reconciled with my grandfather during my senior year of high school and share a very good relationship with him to this day. I do my best to ask for forgiveness when I need to and to give it without hesitation. The struggle of knowing my dad left this life burdened with pain and regret 
and not knowing where he stood regarding his own faith, found peace in what can only be called a God moment when a song mysteriously played over and over again and spoke to the life anew my dad had surely found in heaven. My early Christian experiences were critical building blocks of my faith, but I've also had to reconcile what I believe about what it means to be a good Christian. For so long, I thought it was about me and my right behaviors. But here's the thing I'm realizing. The most important thing for me to do is to step into my identity as one of God's beloved people, as someone unworthy yet still saved by the cross. As part of the journey class, we put together biblical mandates, which I thought were, was such a helpful process in creating direction for my faith. We searched for scripture packed passages that could inform how we do life. One of the points of my mandate was this. My place with God is secure because of what Jesus has done, not what I have done. I accompany that with Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. My behavior doesn't shape the light of God in me. The light of God shapes me. I have to stop trying to do and instead be. Be a believer. Be a follower. Be willing to join God and others in his work on this earth to bless a broken world. My question regarding how God looks upon the people of this world, including those practicing other faiths, has found a very unsatisfying answer I have to become comfortable with. I don't know. All I can do is trust God will take care of all he has created. While my sister's seemingly perfect faith has been hard to live up to at times, I have benefited immensely from watching her and her husband build a relationship and family that place God as the centerpiece. There are examples at the forefront of my mind as I think about how to help my own family do the same. The long periods of loneliness and stress surrounding my singlehood during my adult years were put to rest when I finally met my husband and his three spectacular daughters. During the same months and years, I was longing for my own family life to begin. Emma, Megan, and Maddie were spending that time creating shared memories with their mom and dad together. I can see how my rail of unrest regarding wanting a family so desperately was aligned with the rail of their final precious years with their original family. Now I can see God's hand was at work. My stepdaughters needed that time more than I needed a timely answer to my prayers for a family. The certainty of my place in my husband's heart and life and of his daughter's hearts and lives has blossomed into the realization that God renews and restores. I'm not only certain we were meant to be in each other's lives, but I'm even certain the girl's mom, my husband's ex-wife, was meant to be in my life as well. Her support and example have been important in my role as a stepmom. And I know I am learning from her. What I'm learning from her will even extend to how I raise my own girls. The years of watching my friends start families and have children of their own stretched me. I constantly had to focus on choosing joy and happiness for them instead of wallowing in my own disappointment for not having the same. Over the years I wished for a family, God must have heard my stress and heartache and heard them as prayers, and he answered. I'm beginning to learn the best of who I am, who I'm meant to be, and what this life is about from my family. I'm reminded God has a plan, and it's all in due time. The simple prayer, your will be done, is becoming a focusing point in my life. 
Today, my mom is well and a vital part of my family, spending one day each week at our house, watching our little girls. She is an adored and loved grandma. To hear my three-year-old call out, Grandma! With such joy in her voice, each Friday morning when my mom arrives is absolutely heartwarming. I know the relationship between my daughters and my mom is full of blessings both ways. Even though, the heart, even though heartache brought me to the doors of Orchard Hill Church years ago, today my entire family is reaping the benefits of this church, its people, and its work. On multiple occasions, my stepdaughter Megan has shared with me the great influence Orchard and Big House, the high school ministry, have had on her own journey of faith. She will be joining Caravan this summer on their trip to New York, and I can't help but feel proud to be supporting her in that experience. It reminds me of my own youth group trips in high school, and I'm glad to be providing that opportunity to my own daughters. Both Vivian and Clara have been baptized in this church, and I look forward to watching them grow up here and seeing them live through faith-growing experiences like I had. As far as my own place at Orchard, I can see that during the years I spent in complacency, not engaged in developing and deepening relationships with close Christian friends and within a church community, while I may have felt God and I were okay, that was only a partial truth. I know now my faith is best stoked within a community of believers. As I put together these final pieces of my narrative, what has become so clear is throughout my entire life, God has been close to me through the pain, the heartache, stress, impatience, doubt, and distance. And he has offered me abundant love, hope, purpose, fulfillment, and faith. In closing, I'd like to share my own words from a college application, scholarship application I filled out when I was a senior in high school. Although I'm a very different person from my 17-year-old self, in many ways I'm coming full circle back to that girl I was. Above and beyond all, my relationship with Jesus is the most important thing in my life. Through him I've learned what forgiveness and trust really mean. I know he is with me every day and I can conquer anything with him in my heart. God is in control of my life and I know that in him I can do anything. Thank you so much. I'm going to uh, pray for Angie and her family and for any of you who were touched by this story. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the courage Angie showed in standing up here. Thank you for the way you've worked in her life. Thank you for what she put on that uh, 17-year-old scholarship application and how her life has come back to that right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for her five or three stepdaughters, her two daughters, her husband. Thank you. Father, uh, there's a lot in her story that could touch us. Uh, the story of depression, the story of singleness, the story of family broken relationships, the story of a young woman adrift, uh, spiritually a little bit. So, Father, I pray that those in the room who can see themselves in this story would receive encouragement and strength and power and would choose like Angie has, to draw closer to you again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks.